It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. The week's most interesting interviews with senators, commentators, and newsmakers. Giving you a replay just in case you missed it. The Guy Benson Show. Joining me now is Dr. Condoleezza Rice, who served from 2005 to 2009 as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States of America under President Bush. She is now the director of the Hoover Institution, where we're broadcasting from, a senior fellow here as well. She's authored numerous books, most recently, To Build a Better World, Choices to End the Cold War and Create a Global Commonwealth. Madam Secretary, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you, too. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So we've had the privilege of broadcasting from Hoover now three or four times. It's always great to be back here. Since our last visit, you became director of Hoover. If you would just reflect briefly on why this place matters, why it's special, and what it means to you to be helming this institution. It matters a lot to have a place that is dedicated to the mission that uh, Herbert Hoover set out for us. It was to improve the human condition uh, through an understanding of the importance of free markets and private enterprise, limited government, and individual liberty. And that's still at the core of what makes a great democracy. And so here at Hoover, we work on the problems that are confronting that great democracy, whether they be problems abroad, like uh, how to deal with a rising China, uh, how to leverage a relationship with uh, India, uh, or problems here at home, how to make sure that every child has a K-12 education that is worthy of the name education, and increasingly uh, issues of state and local governance, and for us, technology and governance. We sit in the Silicon Valley, and we think we have some things to say about that. But the thing I'm most excited about is that we've just created a new center for the revitalization of American institutions because these great institutions that we were bequeathed by our founders have served us well, but they're under attack from people who say that they're not worthy because they were born of slavery, uh, to people who say they're not worthy because they only serve elites. And uh, we believe that, uh, yes, these institutions may need reform, they may need revitalization, but they are precious. And here at Hoover, we want to find a better way to defend them. One of those institutions is the Department of State, which you led under President Bush. I saw over the summer some advertisements for a master class that you taught with a previous Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, who passed away earlier this year. I did want to take the opportunity to ask you just about your relationship with her across party lines and her legacy, because it's got to be pretty cool to have forged that relationship as two female secretaries of state, albeit from opposite sides of the political spectrum. And that relationship uh, goes back a long time because Madeline's father was the person who saved a failed piano major and taught her international <laughs> politics at the University of Denver. What a small world. A very small world. And I remember when he said, I have this daughter, you have to meet her, her name's Madeline. And so we finally did meet. Madeline uh, was really just a fierce fighter for the values that we espouse, for liberty for all, for uh, standing up to tyranny. Uh, she's maybe best known for her decision that we had to find a way to help intervene in the civil war that was taking place in the Balkans uh, in the 90s. Uh, but Madeline was just somebody who believed in these values. She fought for them. She was uh, fierce as they come, and uh, I miss her. She was also a very, very good friend. Let's talk about Russia and Ukraine. And Russia analysis is sort of in the sweet spot of your wheelhouse. So where does this go from here? I know nobody has a crystal ball. You can't possibly predict the future, but you know a fair amount about Vladimir Putin. You've been watching 
this war develop. A two-part question, what comes next in your view? And secondly, what should the United States government be doing in the West broadly and not doing? Well, let me go to the last part of that first. Uh, we are doing the right things. I might have done them a little bit earlier with a little bit more speed, but uh, but when uh, people are willing to stand up for their national heritage, for the values of, of liberty and uh, for the sovereignty, which, by the way, we helped to guarantee when the Ukrainians uh, gave up their nuclear weapons at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, right. uh, when we believe in a rules-based international order uh, where large countries don't simply decide to make small countries extinct, which is what Vladimir Putin is doing, uh, we have to support them. And I fully support the military assistance we're giving them. Uh, we've really been uh, helping to train them since the end of the Crimean uh, events in 2014. The military of the Ukraine is turning out to be quite effective, and we need to keep supporting them. Now, what should we not do? I hear a lot of people talking about off-ramps for Vladimir Putin. Well, it's Vladimir Putin who keeps shutting off the off-ramps. Uh, you don't annex your, uh, legally annex your, uh, illegally annex your neighbor's territory and then want to negotiate. So uh, Vladimir Putin, who got himself into a war that he thought was going to be easy, now has to mobilize uh, young men in Russia to fight this war. They're fleeing the country rather than fight. They, they, I read that one of the most searched uh, elements, articles on, uh, on, on the equivalent of Google is, how do I break my own arm? That says something about who's willing to fight in this. And I want to say one thing about the, the big threat that everybody talks about, the nuclear threat. That was my next Vladimir question. Putin. Yes. I, I can't say that the chances are zero. I probably would have said that months ago. Maybe it's 10%. That's pretty scary. But you can't self-deter under these circumstances. And you just have to keep reminding Vladimir Putin that to use a tactical nuclear weapon, which would have no battlefield value really for him, his military is doing poorly, uh, not because they don't have tactical nuclear weapons, but because they are badly trained, badly equipped, the logistics is terrible, and they have low morale. He's not going to fix that with a tactical nuclear weapon. Secondly, I'd say to him, winds blow east. Uh, you're going to contaminate your own country. And finally, you really will be a pariah forever. And so I think telling him that there would be catastrophic consequences, not defining them, is the right way to deal with this. And so don't try to push the Ukrainians into some kind of negotiation. Give them the upper hand on the ground first. And then if Putin, realizing that he's losing this war, wants to negotiate, they go to the table uh, in the strongest position. He has been wielding energy as a weapon, obviously trying to leverage Europe and blackmail them in some ways, bully them. On the broader question of energy, OPEC making the announcement earlier that they're going to curtail the production moving forward here, which of oil, which obviously is a huge deal, has implications abroad, geopolitically, also here at home as we look at domestic mm -hmm. energy production and consumption. What do you make of that move? I know everyone's analyzing it through the very near-term prism of the midterm elections, fine, but it goes much broader than that, doesn't it? It does. If, if ever we had a wake-up call about the need to fully develop the North American platform from Canada to Mexico through the United States, the gift that it is to be able to be energy self-sufficient, and oh, by the way, uh, to produce enough energy to export to, uh, to other countries. If ever we needed a wake-up call, Vladimir Putin has given it to us, and uh, there's a second jingling of that call by what OPEC has done. Um, I, I have to say I've always known the Saudis to do what they need to do for their budget, so I wouldn't read much into this from the point of view of the Ukrainian events. I think this is really the Saudis saying, here's where the price of oil needs to be for us to do what we need to do. 
Do you really want to be dependent on the Saudis in that way? Do you really want to be dependent on the Russians and the Iranians? Or would you rather have U.S. be the source of those hydrocarbons? I know everybody who believes that climate change is a problem, and I do believe that it's a problem, uh, wants to get as, as, um, as much as we can to a cleaner set of sources of energy. That would be called natural gas. And it would also say that that transition is going to take some time. You're not going to be uh, able to get uh, rid of hydrocarbons in the near term. I would rather those hydrocarbons come from the United States and stable places like this. And you can't send mixed signals to the producers of oil and gas who have long tail investments. I was a Chevron director in the 90s. The investments that these companies have to make are long tail investments. So don't tell them, well, produce for seven years and then we're going to move on to renewables. They have to have some predictability. And, and by the way, you're greedy right now and we want to put you out of business, right. but produce, produce, produce. But produce, produce, produce. And oh, by the way, we've given you leases, but not permitting. So the energy policy uh, is, I think, the core of where we have to go if we want to have both a sensible energy policy and energy security. Madam Secretary, in your first answer, you referenced a rising China. Let's talk about China and that challenge for a moment. I'm sure you get many questions about Iraq and the legacy of Iraq and the Bush administration, the decisions made leading up to that war. I wonder if you get as many questions about the Bush administration's policy vis-a-vis China. And it's not really unique only to Bush. It's numerous administrations across both parties that I think some critics would say now were perhaps too sanguine about China's intentions and what their designs were. Based on what you know now, what you're looking at now, looking back on your time as Secretary of State, what do you think your administration and others got right about China and maybe not right? I would just say, what was the alternative? Uh, Was the alternative to try and isolate 1.4 billion people with an economy that was growing rapidly? Uh, Yes, we we and others before us uh, took a chance after Deng Xiaoping. And that was the view that if you could integrate China into the international economy, the international economy would grow as a result, which, by the way, it did. It did. And uh, you would... It began to to change the nature of Chinese uh, policy. I never was one who believed you were going to democratize China as a result of, result of this, but I did expect that they would respect uh, intellectual property. I did expect that they would be uh, that their markets would be more open, and we fought for that every single day. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with Hu Jintao. You're stealing intellectual property. Uh, open your markets, and so it's not as if people were uh, naive about what was going on with China. But the, the, I do think there was a change with Xi Jinping, and that was that he essentially gave up on any sense that China had responsibilities to the international system and began to just take, take, take to uh, enhance China's uh, growing authority in the international system. And that meant uh, challenging the United States on technology. We're going to surpass you in AI and quantum computing. And, and uh, oh, by the way, we learned that we were way too dependent on supply chains through China for everything from pharmaceuticals to uh, our over-dependence on semiconductors. Right, they're stealing our stuff uh, the, and then we're so reliant exactly. on them. Exactly. And and that was maybe we maybe people were sleeping on that a bit. And and I give some credit to the Trump administration for raising and to my friend Mike Pompeo for raising that uh, as an issue. I think we are we're now reacting uh, in a better way toward that. And uh, at core, it means we have to get our own ha- act in order. It means we have to make the investments in technology here in the United States because I don't I don't have authoritarian envy. 
The Chinese can lay out their plans. Authoritarians make terrible mistakes because it's a single point of failure with one man. You know, that zero COVID thing's not working out so well. That one child policy didn't work out so well. We're now hearing that their policy to be indigenous in what they do in terms of chip development isn't working out so well. So if we do what we need to do, I'll bet on American democracy and I'll bet on our distributed innovation rather than uh, what China is doing. But are you worried at all about American and Western companies becoming in some ways addicted to Chinese money and that huge market far from perhaps turning the Chinese government in our direction? It seems like in some ways the Chinese government is able to manipulate American companies because they don't want to lose access to the market. Is that an overblown fear? Well, I, I think it depends on what, what companies you're talking about. I, I really think, I've, I tell companies all the time, if you have technology and China in the same sentence, uh, don't go there. Because uh, it, whether it's the Chinese wanting to be more indigenous in their development or the American government rightly being concerned about the transfer of sensitive technologies and then ending up in the PLA, uh, the technology sector is going to decouple. And I have no problem with that. You know, if uh, if Chinese young people uh, want to buy iPhones, I don't really have a problem with that. And I will say something about it. You know, those Chinese leaders have those young princelings who kind of like Western uh, goods. Um, when uh, the NBA was uh, in the crosshairs because of what the general manager in Houston had said about Hong Kong, I did tell Adam Silver, I said, you know, Adam, they're not going to kick the NBA out. You know why? Because those young princelings, those only children, are not going to watch the Chinese national team play the Kazakh national team. They want to watch the NBA. So I don't want to cut off an entire generation of Chinese consumers from what America can produce, but I don't want us to, uh, to uh, transfer uh, the, the jewels of technology either. Well, you just mentioned NBA basketball. I think I want to talk NFL football when we come back. Dr. Condoleezza Rice, my guest here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. I'm Guy Benson here with Condoleezza Rice. Madam Secretary, since you invoke sports, I would be remiss if we did not talk a little football. Tomorrow night, Colts, Broncos in Denver. Thursday night football, Amazon Prime game. Interesting. Got it. You are now in the ownership group of the Denver Broncos. You went to school as an undergrad in Denver. Is it surreal? Looking back on your life and all the things that you've done, you are now an NFL, at least partial owner. That is wild. That, I, well, I'm a... a tiny partial owner but i am a partial owner it It counts it counts uh it in some ways it's full circle so i was the uh daughter of a football coach who thought he was going to get a boy and who planned to have his all-american linebacker and i'm an only child so i jokingly said i think my father's probably saying and he's gone to the lord but finally she got an important job you know she's a (laughs) football she's an owner of the denver broncos i actually went to high school in denver so my denver contacts go denver connections go back even further than that i love it i love the sport um i know it has a lot of challenges from player safety to how to think about the relationship to an intercollegiate uh uh, framework that's changing uh every every day uh but it's a really quite american sport you know we're impatient so we want a clock uh, there are not that many things that bring uh, the CEO and the shop steward and the intern together because they're all wearing that Denver Broncos stuff. So uh, I love the sport, and I'm, I'm just grateful to uh, the uh, Walton Pitter Group for the uh, opportunity to be a part of the, the, the ownership. Is there any tension because of your passion for the game? 
between being now a partial owner of this organization and then a lifelong rabid fan of a different organization in Cleveland? Like, how do you navigate that? It's funny. Uh, it's come quite naturally <laughs> with the Broncos. <laughs> Remember, I did live in Denver for all of those years, and so um, I, I love the Broncos as well. Um, I, I won't give up on the, the Cleveland Browns. I hope they win, except when they play the Denver Broncos. All right, fair enough. Finally, since you mentioned player safety, if there were a Commissioner Rice, which I know has been a longstanding ambition of yours, on a slightly more serious note, we saw what happened with the Miami quarterback, Tua, and the concussion protocols and all of that. What would you recommend the league do? Because that's something where I think non-fans look in from the outside and say, that's crazy. Well, it is definitely a, a, a violent game. We know that it's a it's a game that is with their risk. To it has to the, be their, their risk. Uh, I think the league has done a lot over the last years. Uh, I happen to know some neuroscientists who are working with the league on on brain injury and how to prevent it. Um, I think teaching people to tackle differently the rules. Uh, these are all important things to do. But but when you have an incident that uh, may or may not be questionable, I think you review it. And I read that the uh, Players Association is going to review the circumstances. I think that's a good thing. I hope the the league will review the circumstances because it, it, everybody needs to get better at this. Player safety has to be uh, the highest priority because uh, without without the sense that player safety is taken seriously, football won't won't last. And so I think we all have uh, an obligation to make sure that it's right in the forefront. And I think the league has tried over recent years to do that. Uh, you can't have to keep it's, – it's one of those things that you have to keep reminding yourself every day. Dr. Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State under the Bush administration and now director here at the Hoover Institution. Madam Secretary, a real pleasure. It's great to see you. Great to see you, and thanks for being with us here at Hoover, and welcome to California. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. That was this week's edition of the Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. For more Guy Benson Show, go to GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.